Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Evening, fellas. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hello. I'm not your friend. Only You're Sean my is friend. Your friend. Come on. Nope. God. Just me, buddy. God. You oh. suck. <laughs> This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We'd also like to thank our new patron to our Patreon campaign. That's John Raminger. Thank you, John. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Also, make sure you stick around to the end of the show. We're going to talk about a couple things that we're doing in the shop. <laughs> Maybe not so much, at least in my case. <laughs> so uh, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and get right to the questions. Guy, uh, you've got the first question. All right. I'm actually queued up. I know where I'm, know where I'm at today. Uh, this question is from Jeff. And Jeff says, hi, guys. Your podcast is brilliant. Thank you all. Well, thank you, Jeff. I am a hobbyist woodworker only. I started after I found out about French cleats when searching shed storage projects. In an earlier podcast, Guy talks about the benefits of buying a piece of equipment against fussing about making it when time can be spent better using the tool rather than making it. In my case, a crosscut sled, which took me a fair amount of time. And after finally giving up on the five cut method and fixing the fence without with a framing square only to find the sled binds. So I cut it in half and now I have a right and a left-handed sled. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. (laughs) Yeah. I I really would like to buy the anchor miter gauge and uh, watch many operations where he's used straight on the table saw without a sled. So my question is, is a cross-cut sled necessary or beneficial? Thanks for your time, Jeff. So, yeah, the the whole – I've made sleds before. I've made a bunch of sleds. They tend not to last very long. And, you know, I, I, I'd just rather just buy one, like he had said. Um, mm-hmm. The miter gauge is a great way to go. And it's not going to take the place of a cross-cut sled for a couple situations. First of all, it's the, you know, even on my table saw, which has a longer, it has an extra two or three inches in front of the blade. Mm-hmm. Than let's say a normal table saw does. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like the, 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 the saw stop PCS versus the ICS, there's like right. two or three inches in front of the blade extra. And my, my Powermatic is the same way. Mm-hmm. I can cut with my cross cut or my, my miter gauge because of the length of the bar and where it's got to sit flat on top of it, about 12 inches. Mm-hmm. Anything above and beyond that, the miter gauge is going to fall off the back of the saw and right. become pretty much useless. Mm-hmm. So anything pretty much more than 10 inches, I'm breaking out my, my crosscut sled. And with my crosscut sled, I can crosscut, I think it's like 24 inches at 90 degrees, which is right. pretty right. decent size. So you're looking at, you know, like being able to build kitchen cabinets with a 24-inch depth, which is what they are, mm-hmm. um, and being able to cross-cut plywood that 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 wide. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends on what you're doing. If you're doing small hobbyist-type projects, you might be able to get away with, with just a miter gauge. But if you're trying to cross-cut anything more than, you know, 10 inches, 
they're going to need a crosscut sled. Yeah. Now, what do you guys think, Sean? Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I made a smaller crosscut sled that I thought would be beneficial in my shop because I sort of figured that anything that's less than eight, nine, 10, 11 inches wide, I would just go to the smaller crosscut sled. But I found that I uh, go to the miter gauge more often. And then anything, mm-hmm. like you said, over that, I, I pull out the big Incra uh, crosscut sled. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I, I, I wish it were lighter and easier to deal with. But when you got to have a crosscut sled, you got to have a crosscut sled. Um, and especially if you don't have a track saw. Uh, so, yeah, I completely yeah. agree with what you're saying. Yeah. So, I actually have uh, the Incra Miter 1000. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. I have a crosscut sled, but I also have the Incra Miter 5000 as well. And I bought it when I got, (laughs) I know it's, it's ridiculous, (laughs) but I just got so used to using the crosscut sled that I had that I just took the rails off and I recalibrated it for the new saw. And and my thought was, oh, well, when this wears out, I'll just use the Incrementer 5000. Well, it's hasn't worn out yet because it's stinking aircraft carrier. But that's one of the major sort of downfalls of having that large of a crosscut sled. Now, now the Incrementer 5000 does not have that issue in the sense that it's it's much smaller in it doesn't have like a forward fence on it, whereas my crosscut sled has a forward fence on it. And all that just adds a lot of weight. Yeah, because I'm trying to use my crosscut sled for things up to 24 inches, that adds a lot of weight to your sled itself. And so, you know, storing it, I store it on my table saw. So the big problem there is that I have to pull it off. I've got to put it off to the side and then I got to put it back on because I don't have, you know, someplace to hang it or whatever. You know, it, it's relatively cumbersome if you're trying to cut uh, 24 inch wide pieces. You know, you're going to have not only that piece of plywood that you're cutting 24 inches, right? But then you have to have something underneath it, right? For the crosscut sled. So it's, it's a lot of material that you're, pushing through the table saw and it's a lot of material that you have to move around when you're not using it. So you can absolutely get away with just using the miter gauge. And in fact, a lot of times I'll just grab that knowing that I'm dealing with relatively small pieces. And if you're not making a lot of big pieces, it's going to be perfectly fine. It's a great benefit to, you know, maybe rather than getting using a crosscut sled, like the increment 5,000 or making one, you know, maybe getting a, uh, what is it? Track saw or, uh, what, what is that? Uh, what is that rail called that you put on a circular saw that that's shop made guy? What, what is that called again? Oh, like doorboard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, making one of those for, for, uh, for longer pieces, you know, and just get like a really nice miter gauge. And, and I, I totally stand by the Inker miter gauges. They're, they're great. Yeah. I mean, I use my, my track saw and my MFT tabletop with, dogs at 90 degrees quite a bit yep to 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 make cross cuts especially if the like a piece of plywood that's pretty long and mm-hmm. would be too cumbersome on a cross cut sled right but right. um like i said jeff for for the most part they're two different animals and i i think even in a small hobbyist woodworker shop a cross cut sled is a nice thing to have yeah, and it's very beneficial to even though you can't you're having issues with it now, learning how to make little devices and jigs like that, it's very beneficial. Even if you can't get it figured out now, I would still I think it's a skill that I would hone in in, in being able to make a crosscut sled for jigs, dados, miters, something like eventually sooner or later you're gonna need one of these jigs 
So I would, uh, I would take the time to figure it out, dial it in and, and, uh, and make you one for your first miter gauge or your miter crosscut sled that is. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Sean. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, very good experience or technique building skills to doing that. So you build this, it may, may ultimately fail, but in the future, you'll be able to say, you know, hey, I remember I did this before with this other thing and it didn't work. So I'm going to do it this way, which I know will work. Mm-hmm. So you can always, you know, treat all that stuff as a learning experience. Yeah. All right. Uh, who's got the next question? I believe I have the next one. And this one's from Trevor. Hey, fellas, I don't currently have any milling tools. I've seen a benchtop joiners in research, but I don't really hear about them or see them in YouTube or on the Instagram community. Those are the jointers that are currently in my budget. Am I better off saving up for a big boy joiner or would this get me rolling, albeit with smaller projects? Appreciate any and all advice, Trevor. The reason why I took this is because my very first joiner was a ported cable benchtop jointer. And I was so inexperienced. I couldn't even tell you if it was my fault or if it was just a crappy joiner. But looking back on it now, the smaller joiners are the one that I had, the ported cable. It just wasn't a very good machine. And if you were to save up a few hundred dollars more or heck, even you know for the price of that, maybe an extra hundred dollars on top, you can find a used six inch joiner on Craigslist. I would mm-hmm. recommend going that route because the the one that I had, of course, you're going to have capacity issues. Even though it was mm-hmm. a six inch joiner, the beds were probably, I don't know, 12, 12 to 18 inches on the in feet and out feet. It was super tiny. And mm-hmm. not only were the beds small, but the fence was awfully small and flexible and just out of square all the time and in the reliability and the ability to fine tune was really lacking. So if I could finally get the thing uh, to cut right, uh, it it wouldn't stay that way. And the adjustments were very coarse. I had to use shims in order to to level out the beds and to make them coplanar. It -hmm. was just a mess from the beginning and uh, the power, I mean, they're just way underpowered. You're going to be taking super, super light cuts and it, it was just not worth the hassle, especially for a first machine. And you don't really have the experience with the joiner. I highly recommend staying away from the uh, the benchtop joiners. Uh, just from my experience for the ported cable and look at a used jet on Craigslist because you can get a floor standing six inch jet for probably $300, uh, 350 And that's my recommendation on that. Hui, have you used any of these benchtop joiners? I've, I've not, but I do have some questions for you. And, and th- these are just questions in terms of application. If whether or not you were using that benchtop joiner, obviously it's, it's, it was kind of a pain to calibrate, right? Sure. But if you were using that benchtop joiner for like smaller face frames or smaller pieces, let's say you were making a lot of um, keepsake boxes or things like that and just milling up smaller material, would it be... A- okay in that situation? Would it be manageable? Well, you got to think about this from two different perspectives. Us at our experience, well, not, you know, not that we're on the same level, but an experienced woodworker that understands the tool and how to, how to calibrate it in a brand new woodworker, like, you know, some people Mm -hmm. out there that don't have a jointer, they don't know what the issue is, if it's technique or if Mm -hmm. it's the joiner. I mean, looking at it from my perspective now, sure, I could dial it in and, 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 uh, and probably use it for small pieces. But if I'm starting out and I don't know mm-hmm. if it's technique that's causing it or if the machine's out of calibration, I mean, of course you could, but I just think that you're going to struggle. Yeah. I guess it's a situation of like, well, is it me or is it the machine? And you don't exactly. really know because you have no experience yep. 
And I mean, and I could have used shims and all of that stuff because I was so inexperienced and thought the machine was messed up, but it was really my, my jointing technique, you know, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight years ago when I first started. Ultimately, I got it dialed in. I used it a few times and I sold it and then got mm-hmm. a Grizzly six inch jointer. Guy, that's actually something that you mentioned in the past where it's like, you know, you get a machine and you really don't know if whether it's you or it's the machine, but at least when you get something that's reliably either new or comes from a reliable source used, you can kind of say to yourself, well, it's probably something I'm doing at that in that situation, right? Well, with me, if there's something wrong and there's a, you know, a mistake being made, it's always, always, always the machine's fault. <laughs> How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> uh, I, I actually had one of these tabletop joiners. It was a four-inch joiner. It was a Craftsman. Mm. I think the in-feed and out-feed tables were, you know, if you added them together, it may have been 24 to 30 inches. And to be honest with you, it worked fine. I did not face join on it. I only edge jointed on it. And once I got it dialed in, as best as you can with something like that. It worked fine. Yeah. I edged, you know, I used to buy all my, my lumber. It was all from the, you know, at that time, the big box store was um, Builder Square, long since out of business. There was no Home Depot or Lowe's, but there was Builder Square. And I used to buy all my, my lumber from them. And it was all pine and red oak and stuff like that. And all I did was edge join it so I could make larger panels. Right. Believe it or not, it worked fine. Mm-hmm. At least I remember it working fine. This gentleman's situation, I, I'm going to agree with Sean, and save up your save up your shekels and buy a, a, a used six-inch joiner. Yeah. You're much better off in the long run. Yeah. You get longer beds, and you also have the ability to face joint boards. So yeah. there you have it. Getting one of these used joiners, particularly if it's a straight knife cutter head, I mean, you're going to learn how to, some of the things that are important, like setting the knives and whatnot and and, and making sure. Right, right. You'll learn things just by getting a used jointer as well, or a new one for that matter, but, you know, a six inch, a bigger one. Yep, for sure. All right. Hui, what do you have for us? All right. So this one is from Kalman. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, really enjoy the podcast, and I enjoy learning new things from every show. I have a question on how to deal with the harmful fumes from finishes. My workshop is in my basement in a completely walled-off room from the rest of the basement without any windows. When I have to finish a project, I have to move it up into the garage, but then I have to deal with the dust and other factors that I can't control since it is in my garage. I can control the environment in my shop, but being a tad close to the furnace and or other open flames, uh, flame devices, I really don't want to blow up the house. Well, I I don't blame you. (laughs) I don't mind drilling through the wall, but I really can't exceed four inch diameters through the wall to vent to the outside. So do you have any ideas of what kind of fume extraction device exists for this purpose? So, you know, there are some filters. I think uh, uh, Axiom makes one that's like a, that actually will extract fumes from the air. It's expensive. It's very expensive. Now, what I do, uh, have been doing, is I do actually finish in the garage. Uh, Before I had like an overhead ambient air filter, 
I used a, a box fan with a filter on both sides, the inlet and the outlet. And then I open the garage doors and I make sure that I have plenty of ventilation. So, you know, maybe that's something you could try as well, you know, before before you go into your garage, because I, I, I don't know, I, I just I, I would hate to drill a four inch hole through the wall and, and try to vent out of my basement when you've got a garage. And if you just blow all the dust out and let it settle and then, you know, use a couple of box fans with filters, you might try that and get a little bit better results than you might think. So. That's what I do when I'm finishing to ensure that I don't get like dust particles all over my my stuff. And it actually works okay. It, besides, I'm sanding in between coats anyway, so so it's really not that bad. But guy, I know you well, actually I think we all finish in our garage, right? Yeah. What do you what do you what do you do, guy? I vent outside. Yeah. You have to remember fumes <clears throat> fumes and getting rid of the the overspray or blowback are two different things. Right. So there's really, you have to remember what a, a, a smell is. A smell is an actual particle that's in the air and mm-hmm. it lodges in your nasal cavity, navel cavities and you can smell it. Yep. Just like a fart. <laughs> That's a great analogy, among other well, things. I'm sorry, but it is what it is. So the only way to get rid of that is to mm-hmm. clean the particles out of the air, mm-hmm. which is a very expensive device, as we mentioned. There's lots of different things out there. Yep. Or simply to vent it outside. Yep. That's one way to get rid of the fumes. Now, there is another way. It's just to avoid fumes altogether. Right. I use a lot of water-based products simply for that fact. Mm-hmm. I can't spray lacquer in my garage because my house will stink for the next three or four weeks. Right. However, if I spray water-based lacquer in my garage, it doesn't stink at all. Right. And most of the issues I have is not with fumes using water-based products, but it's the blowback mm-hmm. and overspray, which it, it's, it's not like you get this coating of wet finish on everything it lands on everything as dust yep it hits the whatever you're spraying and bounces back a little bit and goes up into the air and lands as dust and you just wipe it down afterwards it's not a big deal but you can also vent that stuff outside or like we says you take a box fan with filters and go through all that you know i just vent the stuff outside I know. What do you yeah. do, Sean? When I apply finish, I'm mainly wiping any type of oil finish. I don't spray lacquer. Um, I do spray primer and paint. But mm-hmm. what I do is I'll use the respirator. And when I'm done, I will crack the garage door and um, and let it air out. Yeah. Uh, for But see, I normally wait about at least an hour for the finish to tack up a little bit. And then obviously I'll go inside, take the respirator off, come back about an hour later. And then I'll crack the door, let it air out for probably another hour and then close the garage door and then rinse and repeat the next night. But you're wearing the respirator mainly because of the particles in the air that are large enough to get caught in there, not necessarily the fumes. I'm wearing it for everything, for both. Yeah. So I guess the question is, is if you're wearing a respirator and somebody farts, could you (laughs) No, No, you don't. I can tell you. You don't? No, you don't. (laughs) How do you know, Sean? Well, how do you think? I tested that because I was like, huh, what if I can smell this? 
And no, I wasn't able to smell it. Podcast where we discuss very, very important questions. Yeah, I was not able to smell it. If you are able to smell it, let us know. I got a question for you, for both of you guys. So he's he's talking about here, um, he can't exceed a four-inch diameter through the wall. My guess is that just having a four-inch hole through the wall is just not going to be enough. If there's an exhaust fan attached to it. Correct. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess he could do that uh, if he wanted to stay in his garage or his basement. But man, I, I would probably do the garage. I, I don't know, with a furnace and everything in there and- yeah. Well, did and he, he also talks he also talks about moving the stuff up to his garage because he has to put the stuff up in the garage because of the stink, but he doesn't like to do that because of the dirt and everything in his garage. I I'm gonna almost guarantee there is more dust and crap down in his shop in the basement than there is in the garage. Yeah, I would think so too, if that's his shop. I don't think so. Right? I don't think so. So um yeah. as far as as things exploding in your shop, you would have to have a lot of vapors in your shop to, mm-hmm. to, for the furnace to pick that up. And again, you know, it really boils down to, you know, and, and we and I almost took this to the, to the point of you're spraying something. If you're just like wiping, doing a wiping varnish, yeah, the that. stuff stinks, but it goes away fairly quickly. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about, you know, if you've got your mechanicals in the same room, in other words, your your furnace and such, mm-hmm. you really shouldn't have to worry about the fumes catching mm-hmm. fire. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about it at all. I'd be more worried about, you know, crumpled up oil-soaked rags. Yeah. I worry about that. Well, all right. There we go. Guy, I think you've got the next question. And this is from John. It says, hi, guys. I have a question for the podcast. I recently made a miter station out of some three-quarter-inch birch plywood. Originally thought I wasn't going to apply any finish, but I've decided I would like to mostly for for protection of the work surfaces and also for aesthetics. What does aesthetics mean? Oh, God. (laughs) God. Would it be a bad idea to apply a water-based poly to only the visible tabletop and drawer fronts and skip the inside of the cabinet? On a normal furniture project, I know it would be best to finish all surfaces, but wondering if this would be passable for shop furniture. Thanks, John. So it's really two questions, and I'm going to hit the second question first, kind of. He says, on a normal furniture project, I know it's best to finish all surfaces. And he's meaning inside and outside. I would disagree with that to some point. I don't always finish the inside of my projects. Mainly, I don't worry about things that people can't see. Mm-hmm. If let's say I've got a, a frame and panel construction cabinet, I may put one coat of finish on the inside of it just real quick, mm-hmm. just to put something on there because I feel like I should, but I really don't care about it one way or the other. He's also talking about would it be a bad idea to put a water-based poly on the visible top and drawer fronts? I think that's a great idea. Yep. It'll be easier to clean more mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you guys think? I still don't know what aesthetic means. Let me ask you, let me ask you real quick about your only applying to finish or to, to parts of the project that you can see. What if it's a big tabletop, solid wood tabletop? Are you still uh, only putting it on one side? I may put one one coat underneath. Okay. And if even if I'm, you know, doing like a, a a 
quote unquote hand rubbed oil finish, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, wiping poly or something like that or wiping varnish. I'm only putting one coat underneath. I may put, and I may put three or four or five on top. And same gotcha. here. If, if it's a solid wood top, I'm putting, I'm putting finish on the bottom, but not yeah. much. No, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kicking it on the same. Well, I don't kick it on, but yeah. I'm not putting it on the same amount as I would on, on the top surface. No, no, but I, I'm with you. I mean, you, I, I'm sitting at a desk right now and the drawers, the fronts of the drawers are finished, but the inside is not at all. Um, I never put finish on my drawers. Yeah. Ever. So. Drawer fronts though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But like drawer size and stuff like that. I never do. Yeah. So you, you sometimes put shellac on the inside, right? Uh, Sean? Yeah. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll put um, a water-based finish, like high performance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's no wrong reason why I do that or when I do it rather. But when mm-hmm. I do, that's the two products that I use, obviously. Um, but I would prefer now just doing a high performance, most mm-hmm. likely. It's just mm-hmm. easier. Yeah, but, I really like uh, these water-based finishes, man. You know, you just put, you get a foam brush, you put it on, and it it flattens really nicely. Yeah, and it sands really easily, and it dries really fast. So, like, and if you've got a, even a decent sized project in a day, you can put on you know three coats of finish, right, right, and be done with it. Mm-hmm. And it looks really nice, and it feels good. The only thing I don't like about it is it's water white. And it doesn't impart any type of warm mm-hmm. color to the to the wood. You know, Add a little bit got, of shellac on the bottom might help, right? Yeah, you do you put some shellac on first to do that. But I mean, if you got like if you, if you let's say you make something out of tiger maple, mm-hmm. and you don't put something on there to pop that grain a little bit, yep. and you just put water based poly over top of it, it's going to look like crap. Yeah. It's just very dull. It's not, yeah, it's not going to do anything to pop that grain. Mm-hmm. But as I said, getting back to John's original question, yeah, I'd put some myself. I'd put a, a coat or two of of the water based poly on there, mainly not for the aesthetics because I don't know what that means, but mainly <laughs> because of the um, just it keeps it cleaner. Yeah, it's yeah. easier to clean. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's very hard to dust off or wipe off a, a plywood just bare plywood yeah it doesn't you know it'll catch the rag and yeah all that it's, and stuff. it's porous it's porous yeah yeah and you get so, oil or something on there i mean whatever glue whatever it's gonna, gonna soak in a little bit yeah so guy aesthetics it's a noun a set of principles <laughs> concerned with the nature and appreciation of beauty especially in art <laughs> thank you sean you're welcome. I always wondered what that word meant. I've heard it. I've heard it before. I never really knew what it meant. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. All right, Sean, you got the next question, buddy. All right. This is from Pat from Nest Built Design Co. And he DM'd me and showed me pictures of this. But so a question for the podcast. What do you think about vertical slash horizontal lumber storage like this? And he shows a picture of horizontal lumber rack with boards laying on their edges instead of face down. So imagine them on their edge and stacked from front to back. Mm-hmm. I can't store a lot of lumber vertical as my ceilings aren't that tall and my cutoffs are not that long. So this was a hybrid solution I thought up, but it sounds like a few others have had the same thought, food for thought. Uh, when he, he sent this to me, I thought it was pretty clever because if you have your horizontal lumber rack and you've got all your boards stacked up there and let's say mm-hmm. you want to look at 
the third board that's in the stack or the fifth board, you've got to do a lot of reorganizing and pulling them off. So he lays the boards on their edge and mm-hmm. stacks them, you know, from front to back instead of on top of each other. And I thought that was pretty clever. Um, mm. You know, I've not seen it done before, um, but he's saying a few others have done that. Uh, you can see the width of the board. You can pull it out quickly, look at the grain, slide it back in instead of having to rearrange a bunch of other boards. And especially since he's saying you have, you know, he's the shorter cutoffs that are not, it's not like you're pulling out eight foot long boards. I thought that was pretty clever. What do you guys think about a solution like that? I think it's, I think it's very clever. I, I can't think of any downsides to doing it that way in terms of uh, what it would do to the material. So, I mean, if it works for you, great, do it. But I can't think of any downsides to it. Yeah, it's, it is a good idea. And I do, I do that same thing with wood that I've milled up for, you know, the initial milling on a project. I, mm-hmm. I store it on its edge like that, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I'm too lazy to stack it up and put stickers between everything. So mm-hmm. it gives you a good amount of air running around it all. The only, the only downside to that, the only downside of that, you know, typically if you have a horizontal lumber rack, the correct way, and I'm saying correct, you know, I don't know if that if it's correct or not, but the, the, the widely accepted best way to do it is to put, if, you know, if it's horizontal, you have to put stickers between all your boards. Right. To give you even airflow, but nobody, nobody does that. <laughs> Except no. people on YouTube that, that think they're smarter than everybody else. So... <laughs> Most of the time, it's just laying flat. And the, 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 even if you put stickers in, the, the, there is an advantage to that because mm-hmm. it keeps your boards, it helps keep your boards flat because of the weight of the boards on top of it. Right. Which mm-hmm. you won't get by standing them on edge. Right. That's right. the only advantage I can think of to doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. But I store all my, all my lumber vertical. I do. Yeah. I think you guys do also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heck, every place I've ever purchased, uh, crap, I'll take that back. One sawmill or a lumber supply place does it's it. It's all vertical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. one Every place except for the sheet good place that I get. I'm saying place a lot, but um, one of the two places that I buy lumber stores it horizontal <laughs> mm-hmm. on a pallet. So, but yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I wanted to, uh, I'm glad he sent that in because we wanted to chat about that, or at least I did. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, yeah. yeah, good idea, is. Pat. Good All right. idea, buddy. Hui, what about you? What's your uh, last question there for us? My last question is from Alex, and he's asking about calculating expansion and contraction. Is there an actual formula, or do I just keep on making an educated guess based on my feelings for what a particular piece of wood might do? A good example to ponder, I recently built a 12-foot tall solid wood paneled sliding barn door for a master bedroom out of alder. Each board is six inches, uh, six inches tall by 30 inches wide and a half an inch thick. The boards are in a dado on both the rail and style in the door frame. That is 144 inches of horizontal grain that will be, that will do whatever it is going to do. How would you calculate or estimate the vertical expansion? So, Uh, To answer your question, is there an actual formula to calculate expansion and contraction? The answer is yes, there is a formula. Um, I included it in in, uh, the notes here for the question, uh, Sean. So maybe you can put it into the uh, show notes 
when yep. we post uh, the podcast. Uh, but Popular Woodworking, their website actually has a, a, an article that talks about how to calculate wood shrinkage and expansion. And I'm not going to, you know, explain all of the entire equation, but basically things that are taken into consideration for that equation are the width of the material or the width of the board, the average yearly change in moisture content. So in this case, if it's in your house, you know, when, what the moisture content is during the winter, what the moisture content is in the summer and that differential, and then determining the dimensional change coefficient that so it basically it's a table that gives a coefficient for like quarter sawn material and flat sawn material and different types of materials so different species of wood and then you do the math right so there is an actual uh, calculation for it i don't do that <laughs> i don't do that calculation i i take an educated guess maybe it's wrong but uh here's an example i i, I recently made a table that was 42 inches wide. And so I made these elongated slots and a wooden button. And I allowed about a quarter of an inch in both directions for each button. So that's a total expansion of a, I guess, a half an inch. And what, what did you base that on? Just previous experience or just Solid Shot numbers. A solid number. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be honest, not previous previous experience. Uh, although, because in the past, I've not used wooden buttons. I've used uh, expansion washers. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so that's what I've used in the past. Uh, and, and in this case, I thought, well, you know, I think a half an inch is going to be okay. But I don't know for sure. I guess I'm about to find out. So that, that's that's what I did. I kind of took an educated guess, but guy, you have a lot more experience with this than I do. What's what's been your, what have you done? I I pretty much shoot from the hip. <laughs> I know that like right now in the winter time it's dry. Mm-hmm. So if I finish the project, I know in August it's going to expand. Right. Here's the thing, and I've just I've said this before, and I know people on other podcasts I've, I've heard that have disagreed with me very strongly on this. However, I'm going to say it again. Most homes are humidity controlled. Most businesses, commercial buildings are very, very humidity controlled. Mm-hmm. The amount of change in humidity that there will be from August to December is almost insignificant. The biggest change in humidity you're going to have is when you take it out of your shop and put it in one of those humidity-controlled environments. That's where the shrinkage or the expansion is going to happen. So if you're building something right now, let's say in my shop, Mm -hmm. which is not humidity-controlled, it really isn't. I may have the mechanicals in there, but, you know, the, the, all that stuff is for the inside of the house. I plan on stuff expanding. Yep. Not shrinking, but expanding. So if I'm building, let's say, you know, I made a, a, a comment about a frame and panel cabinet, and I know that panel is going to expand inside the, the, the grooves or the dados I've made in the legs for the frame of the cabinet. I just throw a number out there. And in that case, you know, if it's a, you know, 24 inch deep cabinet and I've got the, the legs, I may give myself an extra eighth inch on either side of that panel that's in there. You know, conversely, in the summertime, I know my wood has expanded quite a bit and my wood is going to shrink. 
So I make sure that the, 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 the panel is going not all the way, but very close to the bottom of that groove that may be in that leg. Because mm-hmm. I know it's going to shrink in the wintertime, but not much. Yeah. Most yeah. of the shrinkage is going to happen when I bring it from out in the garage to into my house. So, uh, Sean, what do you do? I do the same thing you just mentioned. Um, you know, if I'm making a cabinet, like the, the door panels on the that shaker cabinet that I made, uh, it's in the winter. Which is beautiful, by the way. Can I have it? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sure. Come on down. <laughs> I, I, I know where you live. I know. Five easy payments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, it's in the winter time. So, you know, what I'm doing is I'm going to leave it about, you know, an eighth of an inch um, and center the panel. And if it expands, you know, hopefully it's going to expand evenly. And I lock it down with a little bit, just a touch of glue in the center yep. of the uh, of the style. So it's going to expand evenly, hopefully. And, um, you know, it's going to leave it enough room to expand for the summer. And, um, you know, if it's in the summer and I'm making it, I'm probably going to take just to make it as tight as I can and, and use my hand plane to do a few swipes just so that uh, I can get the panel or the, the, the door panel together and then, um, you know, make it not super, super tight, but probably leave at most a 16th of an inch gap in the summer at most. But I mean, is there, uh, do you just kind of like, like I do just shoot from the hip and say, well, you know, the panel's this big, I should leave maybe a quarter of an inch or an eighth inch or half. Inch yeah. Or- it's all a gut thing. And and I, yeah. another thing that I do is the larger the panel is, the deeper that I make the groove on the doors. Mm. So on a small door, I'll do a quarter inch. If I'm doing a big panel, big framing panel, I'll make that three, three eighths of an inch. Or mm-hmm. if I have enough room, make it a half of an inch. So that way mm-hmm. I can leave more room and not have to worry about it, you know, popping out and showing yeah. and, you know, moving around too much. I, I mean, think, it just all depends. I, you know, I, I think people tend to get wrapped around the axle about way too much stuff. And for me, anyways, that kind of ruins the whole experience I have. I just want to build stuff, man. I don't Mm -hmm. want to have to worry about this, that, or the other thing. I know it's going to expand or I know it's going to contract Mm -hmm. depending on what time of year it is. And I leave room for it. If it's a large, wide panel, I may leave a quarter of an inch. If it's a skinny little thing, I may put a 16th of an inch. Mm-hmm. It really depends on how wide it is for me more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So, it, it sounds like, so let's, let's take for instance, if Alex for, for giggles actually does decide to go through the calculation of expansion and contraction. And he wants to do that and that's fine. He can do that if yeah, he wants to, I but I think, uh, yeah, totally dig it. But I think what, what you're saying, and I agree with you on this, that, he should actually, if he's going to take use that calculation, he should calculate based on the moisture content of wood in his shop and the moisture content of piece of furniture in his home. Um, because yeah. there, there's going to be a bigger differential between that than there would be seasonal changes inside the home if it's just staying in there, correct? That's my contention. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I, I That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. That's my response to it. And there's people that would say I'm an idiot for saying that, but you know, I don't know, man. All I can say is that, uh, my house pretty much stays about the same year round in terms of feeling like I, 
Of course, I'm not a moisture meter, right? So I can't really, but it well, doesn't feel that I mean, big of a difference. I'll be honest. I do. I mean, I feel a difference in the wintertime. My house gets dry. Yeah. But, is your, is your yeah. home humidity controlled? Humidity? No. I mean, I just got heat. It's not humidity controlled. You know, in the wintertime, we have a uh, uh, whole house humidifier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, our, our HVAC system in our thermostat, the, the thermostat checks the humidity yep. inside the house. Then it turns that thing on and off. My, depending on the humidity. My, mine does as well. Now, the only thing is, the only thing is that I can't, my house doesn't add humidity, but it will take away humidity. My, my HVAC well, If you've got a, a whole house humidifier, it will add humidity. And your yeah. H and your, in the, in the, in the summertime, mm-hmm. the system will remove humidity yeah. when your air conditioner is on. That's right. Yeah. So I don't have a whole house humidifier, but so, so yeah, you know, Maybe my house is a little bit drier in the in the winter, but yeah. So yeah, we should look into whole house humidifiers. They're cheap. You can get them at uh, Lowe's or Home Depot for a couple hundred bucks. Do they do they hook right into your HVAC? Yeah, you have to cut a hole in your plenum. Okay, and you hook up a water line to it, mm-hmm. and you can adjust it. In all seriousness, that actually is probably a good idea, to be honest, because I have a baby and she's always getting sick yeah. all the time, man. Yeah. Babies so. tend to get sick and they tend to get larger too. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Th- thanks, guy. <laughs> what did oh, you just that that in- There was a question before about whether or not you were, you know, you hadn't planned on your baby getting larger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we discussed that last episode where he built something and wasn't expecting the baby to get larger. <laughs> the changing station, okay, that's right. Okay, moving All on. All right. All right. <laughs> so, that uh, was pretty funny, though. We, I know, I know. I, it was so dumb. I was like, my bi- poor baby bonked her head on the corner of this stupid thing I built. It looked beautiful, but I'm an idiot. Because um, <laughs> I didn't, it's like, oh, well, her head will get, you know, she's going to grow longer. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> that finishes Growing. up. Uh, I think that finishes up our last question. Am I right? Yeah. 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 So, so let's go. Let's go to uh, let's go to Sean. What do you got going on in the shop, man? Um, no woodworking. Um, I am doing a little bit of CNC work on some aluminum. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been pretty messy and fun. And um, but oh, I did get a new tool. I bought a used, well, not used. I bought it from someone that bought it brand new that never used it. Kevin, uh, he's a he listens to the podcast. He's a, an Instagram that lives here in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, a twenty four inch Lee jig. Oh, nice. jig. oh, nice! Yeah, which which Pretty one? Thrilled about that. Which uh, I know it's twenty four, but did you get the L four R or? No, it's the D four. It's an older unit. Okay. But yeah, and I just got in the dust collection stuff accessories today for it. But I'm looking forward to getting learning that. Um, it came with the VHS tapes, so I'm going to have to just read the manual. <laughs> I, you, on, on their website, they have all those videos. Yeah, you can. Okay, you, good. And they're okay. actually their manual is pretty good too. The manual is yeah. pretty good, and you can Man, download those. They're, those are PDFs. Yeah, he actually had all all the uh, original equipment, the VHS, the the, the manual, and <laughs> I mean. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm thrilled to uh, sit there and read the manual and, and learn and, cool. and all that stuff. It's going to take a while. But other than that, I've not done any woodworking in probably, uh, well, since that cabinet. So probably three weeks. So I may 
get back into the groove this weekend. And like God, whenever, you know, you don't have a project going on, you're kind of getting, wanting to get motivated again. I might make a box mm-hmm. just to, yeah. just to do something in the, in the shop, but that's all that I have going on. Guy. What do I have going on in the shop? I got nothing going on in the shop right now. At work, I've got a lot of stuff going on. We're constantly building stuff there. I'm just finishing up some uh, game tables right now, some backgammon and chess boards, mm-hmm. which was interesting. I had some problems and uh, I got them resolved, which was always good. And the shop uh, last last week... We had uh, guys come out and they're in the process of installing new flooring throughout the entire house. We're having all our carpet ripped out. Oh, so they got they got almost all of it done in three days. Nice, but they've got to come back and do the stairs going upstairs and the landing going up on, on the top of the stairs. We're keeping the carpet in our bedrooms, mm-hmm. so they have to finish that. And because of that, they had all the flooring and all their tools and stuff in my garage over the weekend, last weekend. So I couldn't really do anything out yeah. there. Yeah. This coming weekend, however, I, I had a, when I finished my kitchen cabinets, put the finish on them, let them sit for a day. And then I brought them in the house and like an idiot, I stacked them. Oh. And when I pulled them apart, obviously chunks of finish yeah. came off of some of the panels. So off of some of the doors and drawer faces and stuff like that. So I have to, about half of the uh, the doors and drawer fronts in my kitchen, they all have to come off. They have to get the finish taken off of them and I have to respray them. Yeah. And I'm going to do that this weekend. But fortunately, I'm going to be using our big ass spray booth at work nice yeah nice yeah. So saturday i'm gonna take all the finish off and then on sunday i'm gonna go over there and bring my equipment and my uh my finish and use our spray booth over there so yeah. you use cic correct um centurion the top coat on this is cic yes okay it gotcha. is cic gotcha okay pigmented conversion varnish yeah so that's all i got going on what about you, Sean? Or you already said what you got going on. Yeah, I'll tell you again, though. Um, I got. <laughs> Did he tell us what's going on in his shop? Nope. I got nothing going on. No, I've got a little All right. something. Well, thank you very much, Wade. No, do you have any? Do you have nothing going on? Do you have any plans? I I do have to make a, a kitchen island too because we had to rip the kitchen island out of my my kitchen. So. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Um, so surprisingly, Sean, I actually got oh a Lee. D4R a month ago. Oh, well, D4, whatever it is. It's an older version, but I got it from an older gentleman that lives in Huntsville. Uh, he was uh, going into uh, a senior living, assisted living home, and he was getting rid of uh, some equipment in his shop. And really, the only thing that I wanted was that dovetail jig and uh, had all the all the pieces and everything for it. And it's an older one, so you know it doesn't do like the half-blind dovetails in, in a single pass. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's got it, got it for a great price and, um, yeah, it's older. I think it's probably like 14 years old or something like that, but Hey man, I got a dovetail jig. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, got that about a month ago, but I have not been doing much in the shop right now. I'm just kind of planning out the shop because, uh, 
I've got a CNC machine coming in. Uh, so I need to build like a cabinet or something for to store it on. I need to get started on that as soon as possible so that I can actually accept the delivery of this CNC machine. But really, I haven't been doing much. I've been I've been kind of taking the month of January off from uh, from social media just because I kind of need a break. You know, I've got a lot of stuff going on for with the family and a lot of you know stuff going on at work and just I just hadn't been motivated to really share a lot of stuff. I kind of just and the baby is getting huge. Oh my goodness! And she's I already mentioned this, but she's sick again. Oh my goodness! Just sick all the time. It's it's really yeah. annoying. But uh, wait till I said wait till she starts going to school and bringing all that stuff home with her. Oh gosh, then we're gonna. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's not just your 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 babies or your kids viruses that you have to deal with it's the 80 other snot-nosed kids in the in the class yeah well we got a little bit of time we got a little bit of time yeah <laughs> we got a little bit of time right <laughs> i think that wraps up this show uh, please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community so if you have woodworking questions we invite you to send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or dm us through instagram at woodshoplife We'd also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com. Sean? Simplecove.com, at Simplecove on the socials. And that's it. Great. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks, guys. We'll see you. See ya.